as you turn to Philippians chapter 3, these are probably going to be some familiar verses. Uh, I would hope so for those of us that have passed through the book of Philippians before. Uh, Coming through chapter 3, I know that these verses are very, in some ways, commercialized. uh, But we're going to put a particular angle on them this afternoon for our consideration. Um, And if we had to give some sort of subject matter or theme for the next several moments, uh, we're going to consider the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. The knowledge of God in an experiential and in a relational way, and not just in an intellectual or informational way. The knowledge of God. Um, So Lord, we pray that even as we open our Bibles in whatever way we may have them this afternoon, Lord, as we gaze upon and glean from the scriptures once again, um, we pray that you would open our hearts wide, that you would enlighten or illuminate our eyes, that you would turn the lights on for us to be able to see the face of this beautiful man once again. Um, We want to see you, Lord. It is not possible to know you unless we see you. And so we ask you this afternoon, Holy Spirit, for the knowledge of God in the way that we can ask you for it this afternoon. For we understand that there is more to it than just a request. Um, And we will look at some of those things together. But we pray in the way that we can. Like Moses cried out, uh, we want to know you. Show us your glory. Not satisfied with um, casual or calloused or other places of living in satisfied ways. We want to know you, Lord. And so for this, we ask you, Holy Spirit, unveil once again um, with tenderness and beauty and jealousy, unveil the man Jesus to us, that we might deepen in our knowledge, in our relational experience. We want to go to places we have not gone and give us grace to do that. Give us grace to do that this afternoon. In Jesus' name. It is a joy to gather this way. Um, And I say this way uh, because you realize, even as it's already been said in other ways, um, that because the Bible doesn't define church as an event, we don't define church as an event either. Um, In fact, if you used the scriptures alone in order to produce or to construct a definition of what the church was, Um, You you would be very, very hard-pressed to try and come to conclusions that we have embraced and celebrated and financed. Um, It it would be very difficult, using the Bible alone, to come to the experience of church as an event. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 16, the church is mine. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We understand that 1 Peter 2 tells us that it's actually a people that have been redeemed from the world. That are no longer a people that are just like all the other peoples of the world. But they're now the people of God. That they've been redeemed. They've been reconciled. 
Um, they are being recreated in the image of Christ. Uh, we, we are not actually anticipating for the great day when Jesus returns. We understand that Romans 8 tells us that all things will be reconciled and all things will be recreated in Christ. Uh, but there's a particular aspect of that that we're not waiting for because God is saving people now. God is reconciling people now. He is redeeming people from the hostility and the darkness and the brokenness of the world system now. And in that redemption effort, there is a deposit of divine life, which is the Holy Spirit. And we are grateful for the Holy Spirit, which Romans 5, 5 would say has been shed abroad in our hearts 2 Corinthians 5 would say is though we long for this, uh, our, to be clothed with immortality and with our eternal glorified bodies, we have a groaning for that now because we've been given the Holy Spirit as a down deposit. Ephesians 1 would tell us that as a down payment, we've been given a divine life. And because of that, we are now through that experience, being recreated in the image of Christ. Ephesians 2 would tell us that it's a people that have been freed from the influence of the world, from rulers and powers. Colossians 1 would tell us that it's a people that have been translated out of the domain or the dominion of darkness, the possession of the wicked one, and that they now have been transferred or translated into the kingdom of his beloved son. Point being, it would be incredibly difficult to read only Bible verses and not come away with the idea that the church is a people. That the church is a people that have been rescued from the world. And that through that rescuing endeavor, that God is radically reconfiguring their lives through a power that he is depositing into their lives. He is giving them his own life. And through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, God is not only rescuing people from the world, but he's also rescuing them from the influence of the world so that in an ongoing way, he can radically and dramatically reconfigure their lives so that he can have the peculiar people that he has always longed to have. He can have a people that are actually his Throughout the book of Exodus, and especially after the issue at Sinai, he would say a holy possession. God longs to have a people that he can possess. He longs to have a people that would be all his. A people that would not just live their lives in a superficial way, in an intellectual way, with information about God alone, but that would actually know the Lord in a real, in a deep in an intimate, relational, and experiential way. This is what God wants. And as we read Bible verses, it is incredibly provoking to understand that the nature of the church is a people that belong to God. They've been purchased with blood. They're being radically reconfigured, and God is now revealing himself to them, in the midst of them, and through them until the end of the age. But there's, a, there's the first aspect of it, that God is revealing himself to a people. Yes, he's being revealed in the midst of us. Yes, God is using our lives in particular ways with assignments and responsibilities and all sorts of tasks and objectives and calling and yada, yada, yada. But the first aspect 
of belonging to God is actually having God revealed in our lives to us personally. And this is what we're going to look at today in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul, starting in verse 7, says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The last time that we were together this way, we consider verses from the book of Deuteronomy, the first eight chapters, and in some ways we'll highlight some of those issues once again. But in the book of Exodus, when God revealed himself on Sinai, one of the most epic instances of the entire Bible, if not the most epic and glorious revealing of God that the timeline of history has ever seen outside of the person of Christ. God betroths a people to himself. He marries himself to a people. He says, I long to have a relationship with a particular people that is going to make them peculiar. Meaning, you are going to be different than every other people on the face of the earth. I am inviting you into a style of relationship where you will be defined by me dwelling or abiding in the midst of you. No other people throughout the world as we know it is going to be defined this way. No other God, no other idol, no other tribe, nation, or tongue is getting the invitation that you are getting. And this was the offering to the children of Israel. I am betrothing you to myself. And interestingly enough, when we start to travel through, we end up in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And God tells them, I desire to have a holy possession. But the way that I'm going to get that is by you actually coming under my leadership. By you listening to my voice and obeying my commands. And as you do that, you are going to be radically reconfigured. You will live as a transformed people. And you will be defined by me actually dwelling in the midst of you. This is the ultimate objective of God. To dwell in the midst of a people that he longs to share himself with forever and ever and ever. It's actually what we're awaiting. The great descending of the Father in Revelation 21. Where he can tabernacle in the midst of a people where he will be their God and they will be be his people forever and ever and ever. But in a minor instance of that, God is encouraging them. I long to be with you and to have you together as a people defined by me abiding in the midst of you. That there's a corporate acknowledgement of God's interests. It's not just an individual endeavor, although the individuality required in the response affects the corporate identification. 
but there's a corporate identification and acknowledgement. God longs to have a people. I get it, yes. Would Jesus have come if only for the one? Sure, but the story's not only about you. It's about a people. It's about a people, and he longs to have a people. And this was the invitation. I want a people, and not just any people, but a people that will be defined by me dwelling in the midst of them. But it's going to require a radical reconfiguration. And this is the reason why we have Leviticus and Numbers. Leviticus and Numbers gives us the radical reconfiguration. It gives us the reconfiguration that's required because of the time invested in their lives being conditioned to satisfy their longings and appetites the same way that the rest of the world was. And if we don't get this, then we misunderstand the intentions that are being communicated in Leviticus and Numbers. Leviticus and Numbers is God's recalibration attempt. It's the radical and dramatic transformation. After hundreds of years spending their life being satisfied the same way that the rest of the world was, it was going to take an addressing of the appetites that were alive on the inside so that doing life God's way would free them from the interests of the world system to where they were no longer subject to doing life the way the rest of the world was. And God says in every area, and when you begin to track through, you find that it's in every religious and sacrificial area. You find that it deals with every issue of civil matters and also issues of morality. God did not leave very much unaddressed because the idea was is you have been immersed in a world system that has trained you or conditioned you to satisfy particular appetites that you have the way that it desires for you to. But now you're mine. Now you no longer belong to the world. Now you're no longer living with their appetites, their dreams, their desires. And because of the uh, conditioning that you have been in for so long, I am not going to allow any area to go unaddressed. And God gets in their business. Why? Because they no longer belong to the world. They now belong to God. And for whatever reason, this is more urgent to us in matters when we're shipping people off to other countries. Because we consider that to be missional. We consider the context. We consider the pressures. We consider the cultural conditioning and the things that are alive and raging against the consideration of the gospel in unique contexts around the world. But here, especially in our Western entertainment-driven materialistic culture, we let people pray a prayer at an altar and then we send them out into the world to do life the way they've always done life, now just a top or adopting some Jesus language. And God got in their business and he addressed every particular area of life. He got into the nitty gritty and he said, I'm addressing these things so that you understand that you belong to me now. And so that in you being so dramatically confronted with my leadership, that you are going to know that there are appetites alive on the inside that are still raging or longing or desiring for these other things. But it's going to be the consistency of you coming under my bridling 
or you coming under my harness, or you coming under my yoke, as Jesus would have said it in Matthew 11. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Well, why would that even be necessary? Because the majority of us, before a born-again experience, spent a massive amount of time being conditioned by the world. We spent a massive amount of time Dreaming and satisfying with the world system. And now we belong to God. And in this place of belonging, it is God's desire for us to come up under his yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Well, learn what from you? Everything. Learn everything from me. You're mine now. Don't assume that you know how to do life. Come to me and learn from me. Come to me and learn from me. Don't assume that you know how to do life just because you might have some worldly conditioning and you've got strategies or systems or other things in place that seem to be producing for you results or objectives or consequences that the world might applaud. You're not living for the world anymore. And that's why it's important that you come to me. It's important that you come to me so that you can learn from me. And in certain cases, we look to the world more than we look to Jesus. Because the world has systems that work. The world has strategies that work. And at times when we have not realized that there are appetites that are still alive on the inside, that are desiring success in certain areas where the world system is incentivizing and seducing and producing a certain magnetism or attraction, then we learn how to mask with spiritual language certain appetites that God is longing to see crucified. This is where Paul would say in the verses that we began to read, I consider everything that's behind me to be garbage now. He begins by resume reading. If you begin the verse, couple of verses in Philippians 3. He begins by resume reading. But in verse 7 he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted a loss for the sake of the cross in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. What is the ultimate ambition of your life? Is it to know Christ? Is it to deepen and to develop in the knowledge of God? Because I tell you, to deepen and to develop in the knowledge of God will cost you everything. It'll cost you everything. It'll cost you everything. In Romans 8, he says, I'm working all things together for good. To those that love me. To those that have been called by my name. Is this your ultimate ambition? Is it to know the Lord in an experiential way? I'm not talking about some head knowledge. Because I promise you, when you begin on this road, there are certain places that your head knowledge is not going to satisfy. There are certain challenges. There are certain issues of obedience that a head knowledge in your intellectualism is not going to be able to get you through. And this is the whole point. It's the exposure along the journey of how surface level we're actually satisfied by as long as we can create success stories in other areas that have seduced us. This is the challenge. And can your knowledge of God actually sustain you in any season that God calls you to? Because you're going to find out. Life is hard. 
Life is tough. There are things that are intended to bring us to the threshold, to the breaking point, where we realize our utter dependency upon God, not just as information, but as bread and as life. I am the bread that comes down. And to those of us that have actually walked a while, right, this is why Paul would say in 1 Timothy 3 that that leadership is not for those who have just become new believers. Well, bro, you've never heard him pray. I don't give a rip how he prays. If it's the demographic of the people that we're trying to reach. Well, he's got the look. He's got influence with a particular crowd. Man, you don't know who he knows. Bro, he's got a business. He's got a lot of money. I don't give a rip about none of those things. Because those things are not going to sustain us in seasons that have been meant to reveal to us how superficial our knowledge of God is. He says you can't consider new believers for leadership and relational influence in the church. Why? Because they might fall into the same trap as the devil. To become infatuated with their gifting and the idea of their own destiny outside of surrender to God. Where their life would be defined by their drawing up of their own destiny based off of a self-inflated or uh, over-increased self-appraisal of their own gifting, their own desires. And Paul says people are influential who's just now gotten born again begin to lead in a relational or influential way. Why? Because they haven't been tested over time to prove whether or not they actually know the Lord in a real way or not. They haven't been brought through circumstances that were intended to break them and to crack them wide open to reveal what was actually going on on the inside of them. Paul's charge to the Corinthians when they're obviously writing him about all of their super preachers of the day. He calls them in one point super apostles who have fancy articulation, who have the look, who have the influence. 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, Paul lays out what has actually qualified him to be an influence in the church and to actually plant or foster or cultivate church communities in the knowledge of God. And he doesn't talk about how many people show up to his meetings. He doesn't talk about how many miracles he's seen. He's not talking about some fancy new word or revelation that God has uniquely given him. But he says, I've received the lashes. He says, I've been shipwrecked. I've been betrayed by brothers. He says, I've been deceived. I've been devoured by wolves in sheep's clothing. He says, we've been abandoned at sea and left for dead. He says, we've been persecuted. We've been talked about. I've been stoned. Felt like we were going to die, that life itself was going to be taken from us. In the next chapter in 12, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about the difficulties, the persecutions, the trials. And he says, you go ahead and talk about your little super crew if you want to. But I'm telling you, I know God. Saying, I know the Lord. Because without the knowledge of God that I've been in pursuit of, certain seasons I would not have been able to survive. Because all your little thrills and frills and all the superficiality eventually is going to get exposed. And that's the intention. 
That's the intention. God says you don't belong to the world anymore, so you're not actually qualifying the success of your life the same way that the world is. You're mine now. And as you begin to do life my way, it is going to expose how much is still alive in you that desires to do life the way the rest of the world does. It's going to expose hungers and longings, distractions, and places where we're not actually aligned to God in an intimate relational way, the way that we think we are. Or the way that our language at least would create a cover-up. You see, because God was giving them in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and even in Deuteronomy, that his presence wasn't just to be enjoyed. It was to be surrendered to. You see, some want to enjoy the presence, but they don't want to surrender to it. You want the presence, but you don't want the leadership of it. You want the manifestations, the miracles, the breakthrough, right? We want the frills, we want the thrills. We want our unique demands, even as they did all throughout the wilderness, as they tracked with God coming through Exodus, and God is present in their midst with his leadership, and yet they're always experiencing him, encountering him. There's great glory, there's manifestations, there's miracles, there's signs and wonders, and yet there is still rebellion alive in their hearts to actually surrender to God the way that he longs to have a people surrender to him. And this is the issue. The success of our lives at times is not only to be considered in the manifestations. Because the presence is not there just to enjoy. The presence is there to be surrendered to. The presence is there to be surrendered to. And I promise you, if you set yourself on the track to surrender to God, he will ask you for everything. He will ask you for everything. And it's necessary. Because until he asks you for everything, you don't know if there is a thing alive on the inside of you that will create resistance in times when he longs to have you for himself. And it requires a radical reconfiguration and redefinition of who it is that we think we want to be. Because there is certain knowledge of God that is only attached to the place of obedience. You can't get it any other way. You have to give him what he wants and you have to walk it out. You can track with whoever your faith get it. Sure, you can read books, you can listen to podcasts, you can track with whoever your favorite YouTube personality is, but I promise you, this is informational, it's intellectual alone. It is superficial in the application until it actually touches your heart because revelation is meant to produce subjection. <laughs> in any way that revelation is not producing subjection, you are living in superficiality. Because you're acquiring information of God that's not leading you to actually surrender to him. And you're priding yourself on some intellectualism, some language, where the success of your life is still based on appetites that are attached to the world system. Material endeavors, organizational ambitions, influence and relational circles, opportunities, where we learn how to qualify and quantify the success of our life based on the things that are still attached to what the world applauds. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't want to be faithful to the Lord in whatever unique assignment he might give us, but we understand that assignments don't define us. And so our true value could never be generated from an assignment or a season. It's got to be anchored in something deeper than that. It's got to go beyond what is the superficiality of this life. The world system based off of numbers and lights and persona and power and platform and prestige and all of whatever the accomplishments are. We have to be a people that actually know the Lord. And there's only one way to get there. You have to give him what he's asking you for. If you will listen to my voice and obey my commands, then you will be my holy possession. If you will listen to my voice, in what way is the voice of the Lord speaking to you that you're wrestling with? In what way is the Holy Spirit nudging your heart and dealing with you in areas or in matters to him? And, and it's a dangerous place to be where we can satisfy the rebellion of our lives. It may seem strong, and I'm okay with that. Because in matters where we're actually rejecting the invitation to obedience, we're living in rebellion. And that may hurt, and in whatever way it hurts, we need to let it hurt. Because it should be the greatest joy of our life to give him what he wants. It should be the joy of our life to give him what he wants. Because I promise you, giving him what he wants, and he's going to ask you for everything. He's going to ask you for everything. If there's anything that you hold, if there's anything you reserve, if there's anything that's off the table, I promise you he's coming for it. Because you have to know what real freedom feels like. And you won't know what real freedom feels like until you're anchoring in this life, you're anchoring in the system of the age, you're anchoring in the things that still uh, seduce, the things that still incentivize for you to be defined by any other particular thing or matter or way until you realize that the end of your own life in giving him the thing that you have felt has always defined you. You'll never know what real freedom feels like. And Paul here says, I've lost everything because he revealed himself to me. I've lost everything. And I consider everything behind me, all of the religiosity of resume building, all of the appreciation built on the system of the age or the world's appreciation, I've lost it all. He said, but I didn't consider it to be some great sacrifice. He said, I didn't consider it to be some great sacrifice. Man, like the days of talking about how much we're losing to obey the Lord have to come to an end. Because it actually reveals where our heart is anchored. The days of considering what great sacrifice Oh, you don't understand how much I'm struggling because God asked me for this. And oh, I'm, you know, it reveals where our anchors are. It reveals where our allegiances are. It reveals the things that actually satisfy our hearts beyond the language that we've become proficient in. And Paul says, I've lost everything because there's now a superior ambition. There's now a superior ambition. I want to know him. I actually want to know the Lord. He's like, I'm not satisfied with all the trendy, little cultural, relevant, superficial ways of living in the Christian life. 
where in some cases I haven't actually been reconfigured. I've just learned how to live the life I want to live with a Jesus bumper sticker on my car. Where I've just learned how to do me, but I do it with a little bit of a different vocabulary. And I sing Christian songs once a week. Paul says, I'm done with that. He's like, I want to know him. And this has to be our desire, to know the Lord. But to know the Lord, it's not is our terms. And I think that this is the difficulty that most of us are confronted by, is God sets the terms. God determines what he's going to ask for. God determines how he is going to reveal himself in the midst of what it is that he may be asking us for. And there is knowledge of God connected to obedience that you'll never be able to get any other way. Any other way. We can sing songs, my life is not my own. To you, oh Lord, I belong. Until God starts speaking into particular areas of our life where our life is still very much ours. It's still very much ours. And at times we don't realize how much our life is still our own until God begins to confront us with his desires, his invitation. Well, man, I just feel like there's no area of my life that's mine. Praise God. Man, I feel like there's just, he's just asking me for everything. Praise God. May he give you grace to actually bear up under his invitation to give him everything so that in an ongoing way, he can reveal of himself to you all that he desires for you to be able to apprehend in the place of what we would consider to be the knowledge of God, where you actually know him, where you know him. And this knowing can sustain you in every season where, like Paul, you no longer have unique demands. You no longer live with unique demands where there's no longer a context required in order for you to required. I promise, if you don't really know the Lord, there's going to be a context that's required in order for you to be faithful to God. Because your faithfulness to the Lord is going to be built off of information that you've developed over time, and not the unveiling of a real person. Where, like Paul would say in the next chapter, you can put me anywhere. Put me anywhere. It doesn't matter to me anymore. He says, I've learned to live with little where we've sacrificed, where we've been bleeding out on the verge of death. He's like, and I've learned to live with a lot because there's testing on both sides. There's testing on both sides, right? It's easy to be desperate, to live with urgency when we feel like we don't have much and we're on the verge of death. It's easy in that place, but there's testing on both sides. Right, Because when our interests and the incentives of this world gain traction with us, then we consider the rich young ruler who in the thought of not being who he thought he should be. Right? It's interesting to me. It says when he considered his real estate in this life and the thought of being separated from that saddened him to the point where he rejected the invitation to know the Lord in a greater way. He refused to follow the Lord his way and to grow in the experiential and relational knowledge of God 
because there were certain matters of this life that he was unwilling to be separated from. Paul says, I learned how to live with nothing. And he said, I've also been equally tested on the other side, having to learn how to live with everything. He said, but now it actually doesn't matter because I realize that it's Christ in me. It's Christ in me that's the hope of glory. It's God's actually put his own life on the inside of me. Not just to satisfy my own agenda, but to satisfy his. So that he could have a people that become his holy possession. He could have a people that would find the great joy of their life in being his. And in being his, that being defined a particular way. Coming under his influence and his leadership. Oh, in what greater ways is God trying to bring you under his influence and his leadership in this season? In what way is the Lord prodding? Is the Lord poking, nudging, tugging at your heartstrings? Trying to get you to be his in a greater way. In what way? Like Paul is saying, I learned how to live on both sides and now it doesn't even matter anymore. There's no context that I demand anymore because I've actually given him not enough of me over time to where I no longer require anything in order to walk with him. In what way does the Lord want you to be his in a greater way? Right? We've said for years that we long to be a presence-centered people. Well, that means that we have to make much of the presence and the person of Jesus. It means that the presence and the person of Jesus have to be everything. And that coming under his yoke has to mean everything to us. And that like Paul said, I've lost it all. He said, but I've also learned how to live in seasons of incredible success. And I've been tested on both sides to find out if I was actually his. He says, but that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that's actually coming from God on the basis of faith. Where our stature in God is based off of our loving obedience and sacrifice over time to actually know him in an extraordinary way. Where God has been able to add to us the knowledge of God over time based off of our lives going through the crucible of life circumstance, ups and downs, wins and losses, successes and failures, tragedy and triumphs where we've been through a full buffet experience of life and where God has given us grace over time to continue to surrender to him, to continue to yield to him in a variety of seasons, to continue to give him what he wants when he comes knocking on the door of our hearts. And after some time, God came to Abram again to test him, where we realize that we never graduate from the place of God's evaluation of whose we really are, where we never actually work beyond the threshold that because we've obeyed once, we get some unique exemption from God's interests in order to make us his in a greater way. 
Anyone that's ever yielded realizes that right on the other side of the moment that you thought was your greatest yielding, there's God again with a new invitation to give him something more and give him something greater, to give up something else. It's almost like your greatest offering qualifies you to give more again than you ever thought you could ever give again. But to realize that it's actually the way to freedom in this life in the most extraordinary way, I long for nothing except God. And I realize that the success of my life is actually going to be determined by how well I know him. It's why we're supposed to raise our families in the knowledge of God. It's why the discipleship effort in our homes is not supposed to be pitted just off of unique interests or ambitions that are immersed with the world's appetites. But it's supposed to be on the knowledge of God. Well, brother, you don't understand. The greatest thing I can leave my kids is a material inheritance. It's a lie. The greatest thing that you can actually develop in your kids is the knowledge of God. The greatest thing that you can actually leave your kids is a walk with the Lord. Is the example of what it looks like to be broken under the weighty beauty of God in year after year after year after year in ups and downs and ins and outs in every season and the swirls of life. God is faithful and will continue to reveal himself in great ways to those that partner with his grace in great ways. Because it's not some automatic thing. And this is why some of us know him better than others. And I'm not saying us, meaning inclusion of myself. What I'm saying is this is why some people know him better than others. Because they partner with grace to give him what he wants. It's a dangerous place to be when we are consistently learning how to rebel and yet satisfy it with superficial spiritual language. Where our justifications are built off of the interests of a world system. Um, if you've walked with him long enough, you realize that he's not playing the same game that the world is. He says, I actually am nothing like you, is what he says to Isaiah. I'm not like you at all. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So in times when you're trying to qualify disobedience based off of your own evaluation of consequences and benefits that are more attached to a world system than it is to God's interests and his invitations that he issues. Well, brother, you don't understand. God can't really be saying that because it would lead me to this space. Who says? Who says God couldn't be saying that? Business gurus, the stock market, your bank account. <laughs> God can't be saying that because it would lead to a place that would be utterly devastating. It would lead to a place that I don't like. It would put me in a scenario where I don't know what I would do. Right? I think at times our influence comes more from our uncrucified appetites. At times our influence 
our conditioning, the raging of certain appetites that are still alive on the inside, create justifiable conversations for us to live disconnected from God's leadership. And then we gloss it over with language that applies more to the world system than it does to the system that God has developed in order for him to reveal himself to people. You want the knowledge of God? Obey what God is saying to you. Pay any price. Count every cost. Give him whatever he's asking for. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure of the field. He is life itself. And it's tough when we rebel against his leadership. And then we draw life from these other things in this life that God is attempting to free us from so that he can be the ultimate source for us. It's tough because then we hold tighter to things that God is trying to give us grace to free us from. And at times we don't know if we'll have to actually take the step, but what God is testing is if we're willing. We know Abraham was willing because he climbed the mount and he tied his son up and he lifted the knife. And God intervened. We know that the rich young ruler wasn't even willing to consider the conversation. And now he is remembered for the thing that he held on to. He's remembered for the thing that defined his life that he wouldn't turn over to the Lord. The leadership, he's defined by the resisting of the leadership and influence of Jesus in his life in order to lay hold of other things that he preferred to have define him. Paul says here that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The fellowship of his sufferings. Obeying the Lord is a painful endeavor. Obeying the Lord is a painful endeavor. It's a painful endeavor. It's not always some super um, ecstasy-driven, mountaintop-high, celebratory occasion. No, at times, it requires you being conformed to his death where you know what he wants and you don't want to give it to him. And he actually has to give you real power to do what you don't want to do. Where there has to be an actual partnering with the grace of God that conforms you to the death of Jesus. Where a season of wrestling with his leadership brings you to the place where you can actually say, I want what you want. I'm willing to put my own will down in order for your will your agenda, your desires to be accomplished. Here I am wrestling with you, Lord, with the realization that I don't want what you want always. But Paul says that there's a fellowship in suffering. And that's because it's painful at times to obey the Lord. And so if we only obey 
the things that we've determined are most beneficial, the things that we've evaluated and considered to be the most consequential to how we want to satisfy our appetites, the things that are going to seem to connect the dots in the greatest way for my own dreams, my own desires, my idea of destiny, or my plan that I've attached God to, if I'm only willing to obey the Lord in days that are going to seem to lead me into the things that I want, then there is going to be a vast place in the knowledge of God that is going to be malnourished in our lives. Where we will choose to have the things that we want but our hearts are going to ache. Our hearts are going to ache. Jesus said it himself. What's it going to profit a man to get the whole world? And in the end, he's going to end up losing. He says, but those that are willing to lose their lives for my sake, they're really going to come alive. And they're going to be free. And they're going to realize what life is all about. And I'll be able to trust them everywhere with everything. You see, when we try to connect to everywhere and everything outside of surrender to God, then we end up living in rebellion to his leadership in superficiality with language that satisfies our rejection of his leadership. And it's a difficult place to be where we redefine the terms of success where the success of our life is no longer found in surrender, but now it's found in ABC because, well, you just don't understand how difficult it would be to surrender to God the way that he's asking me to. No, I understand how difficult it would be, and so does he. But he also realizes the life, the joy, the beauty, the freedom, the rest that's on the other side of your next offering of obedience to him. He understands, come to me, and I will give you rest. Rest for your weary souls in trying to make your life what you want it to be outside of the place of intimate surrender to me. Trying to accomplish all of your dreams and chart all of your goals, applying language to it, applying spiritual language to it, but not actually endeavoring in surrender for it, where you're resisting me in certain ways and developing language that justifies it. Paul said, I've lost everything because he revealed himself to me in a great way. This is the starting point. To those whom God reveals himself in a great way, it should produce surrender in a great way. Because again, Revelation should fuel subjection where we see him. And when we see him, we come under him. Where we don't just want to enjoy him from time to time or sprinkle him over the life that we want to live, but where we realize that being a presence-centered person and people means that God is going to invade every space of my life in order to reconfigure the terms and recalibrate me to his interests and his leadership in every area. And this radical and dramatic invitation to obedience is actually the most beautiful invitation when we partner with God's grace to give him whatever it is that he wants so that he can continue to reveal himself to us. 
Paul says, I've actually lost it all. But what I've gained, what I've gained, what God has actually given to me, you can't buy. What God has actually added to me that sustains me in every season, the knowledge of God that becomes life to me in every season where my understanding of who God is, he's no longer on trial in my life whenever he's not creating the context that I demand. Whenever I'm not accusing him and whenever I'm no longer rebelling against him or betraying him, whenever he's not satisfying these appetites that are still alive on the inside of me the way that I wanted him to, he says, you couldn't possibly add to me what God has given me in any other way. He said, but I had to give him what he wanted in order for me to get it. And it's been tested over a long period of time. There is no overnight success and there is no quick fix to the knowledge of God. We actually have to be given over to him time and time and time again over long periods of time, tested in every possible way over seasons of life designed in order to reveal areas of dependency and independence so that through unique invitations to obedience, God can apprehend us or possess us in a greater way than right now what we've settled or become satisfied living in. God, possess me in a greater way. Do you have any idea what you're asking for? <laughs> Do you have any idea? And maybe that's why we don't pray that often. Because we do understand what we're asking for. And we'd rather live in a way that's unbothered. We'd rather live in a way that's unrattled. We'd rather live in a way where we can continue to construct all of our own dreams, but yet at times live absent from what our heart aches for, which is the knowledge of God. You can acquire the world and leave a gaping hole on the inside that cries out for the knowledge of God. He says, Lord, possess me in a greater way. Oh, I want to. Oh, I long to. But that means I'm going to confront you. Not in a negative way. Confrontation isn't always negative. I'm going to confront you. And I'm going to begin to speak to you, and I'm going to invite you to give more of yourself to me. And you're not going to get to determine the terms. You're not going to get to create your own context in which it would be preferable for you to obey me. I'm going to create the context and the terms. And like Paul learned, to those of us that have been tested the greatest, it's because God longs to reveal himself in great ways. He longs to reveal himself in great ways. And in more than anything, I'm praying for us as a people this afternoon, on the day where, I get it globally, we celebrate Pentecost. Man, Lord, pour out your spirit again in a fresh way. Don't pour out your spirit in some way just so that we can have um, energetic gatherings. Don't just pour out your spirit in some way where we can somehow harness Holy Ghost power and attach it to our own agenda. But pour out your spirit in a great way 
that would produce surrender in your people. Pour out your spirit in a great way so that you can actually possess your people in the way that you long to. So that the work and power of the Holy Ghost on the inside would lead us to greater depths of submission than we ever thought was possible. Where we would be confronted in areas of our life where we've become satisfied to live with the successes and the appetites of this world, of this life, and the system of the age, and our heart no longer even necessarily yearns or longs or craves a greater unveiling of the person of God. But it's because I have all of these other things in this life that I've become incentivized by. Yeah, Lord, we want you to pour out your spirit, but it's because you deserve a people. You deserve a people that would be different than every other people that are filling the world. You deserve a peculiar people. You deserve a people that would be defined by you dwelling in the midst of them and them as a people being yours, your way as you define it. And so I'm asking the Lord to give us grace this afternoon. Now, you might not want grace for this, but I'm asking the Lord to give us grace this afternoon, to yield to him, to give us grace this afternoon for his presence in times, his evaluation of our life. What do I mean by that? Oftentimes, his invitation is based off of his, his evaluation, where he knows things about you that you don't know about yourself. And until he encounters you and invites you and gets a particular obedience from you, there are things about you that you never knew until he reveals it to you as you're walking with him in the place of obedience that he asked for. And his evaluation is right. And his evaluation is amazing. And at times, until we see it, we don't see it. Right? And praise God for other people that can rally alongside of us and continue to influence us towards this end. This is what we want. We want people in our life that are gonna relationally influence us towards God and every invitation that God may be issuing to me. I don't want you celebrating my rebellion. I don't want you justifying based off of an evaluation or another wisdom that's anchored in this life. I don't want you creating a justifiable conversation as to why my rejection of God's leadership in my life is okay. I don't want that. I want people that are going to look at me in my face and say, I know it's going to cost you everything, but give it to him because he's worth it. I know it's going to be hard but he's worth it. I know you, know you might not know where it's going, but he's worth it and he can be trusted. He's amazing and he's faithful. I get it, it might pain you, it might break you down, it might redefine you, but he's amazing. And you're not actually losing, you're gaining because you're getting him. And what better is there than him? What are you holding on to that in the consideration, like the rich young ruler, man, if I could choose this or Ah, it's, man, it's kind of tough. Like, I want this. Thank God for people that can look at us and actually influence us towards the Lord and his purposes. Right? Where was the faithful friend in the rich young ruler's life to look at him 
and to be like, bro, you are in love with the world. Like you need that invitation. You absolutely need that invitation. Like it's the way that God is actually being the most merciful and gracious to you. He's freeing you from the thing that has your heart. You need to obey that. It's not just preferential, well, do I get this or do I get that? No, you need that invitation because it's going to set you free because you're in love with the world and you're justifying it. Man, we need people in our life that are just going to be honest. Like the reason you don't obey God is because you love the world too much. Where was that person in the rich young ruler's life? Oh, I heard you turned down an invitation from Jesus today. Why? Because you're in love with the world. That's why. You're in love with the world. And you love the world more than you do the Lord. And you're willing to live with the things of this life and go without the life of God revealed in the person of Jesus to you. That's why. I mean, if you're asking for my opinion, I'm just telling you that's why. Where was that person in the rich young ruler's life? To be like, bro, you turned down an invitation from the Lord to hold on to real estate, to hold on to material things? Like you went without the experiential knowledge of God to have something that's satisfying an appetite, knowing you that belongs to the world? You turned down knowing the Lord in a greater way, not understanding that it was through this invitation that God was actually going to crucify the appetite alive in you so that as you walked with him, yielded to him, obeyed him in what seemed to be the most impossible way that you've ever considered, that God was going to give you grace in order to conquer that appetite that has resisted him. He was going to give you grace so that what's raging on the inside of you that's always shifted from his leadership, that he was going to give you grace to actually put to death the thing in you that causes you to live continually in death and satisfy it with superficial language. Where was the person in his life to be like, no, bro, you absolutely need to do what God is asking you to do. And I'm going to pray for you, man, that like the Lord gives you grace, that you bend under the weight of his beauty, that you no longer choose to live without the knowledge of God and to satisfy your own heart in a variety of other ways. The Lord wants a people that are defined by him abiding in the midst of them, where he can reveal himself to them in a great way and then be revealed in the midst of them in a great way so that our lives actually become witnesses and an intersection and confrontation with people in the world who could not possibly understand of the knowledge of God in our life was actually something to be considered. Why are you the way that you are? You'd never be able to understand me unless he revealed himself to you. You'd never be able to understand why I do what I do unless he touched your heart and showed you his face. You'd never be able to get me or plug me into your system or you should not be able to outside of the consideration of the knowledge of God and his desire to have a person and to have a people that are his holy possession, they're fully his. And so more than anything, to be a present-centered people is not something that we can satisfy in an intellectual desire. 
It's not to do our due diligence in researching the Lord. Research alone will never bring you to the place where you know God the way that he wants to be known. And that's because he can't just be researched. He has to be revealed. And he has to choose to reveal himself. You can't manufacture a revelation of God. You can't buy it. You can't buddy system it up. You have to obey him, and he has to choose to reveal himself. And my heart longs for the days where we as a people are defined by our stature in God. And that's not to say that we don't already live in that in a certain measure, but I'm saying where we're defined as being a people of radical abandonment where we are defined as being a people that will pay any price, that will count every cost, not just trying to be wild for the sake of being wild, but being wildly in love, where there's no area of my life that's off limits to him. There's no thing that I've determined that he can't say to me. There's not a space or a place or a conversation where my own understanding and identification of myself creates a resistance to him and his leadership. There's no context that I demand. I just want him. You can put me anywhere and ask me to do anything, and I'll love you and I'll serve you with joy because I find my joy in knowing you and being yours and you revealing yourself to me. Well, you don't know whether or not that's real until you get somewhere that you actually don't want to serve and have a hard time learning to be faithful to God because you don't realize how much context matters to you until you're in a context that you actually don't prefer. But oh, the joy of giving him what he wants. <laughs> or at least it should be. As a people, we want to know the Lord. And there's a way that he has laid out in order for us to apprehend that. And so I'm going to ask if we could all stand together. We're actually going to close and pray in a particular way. And we're going to pray, and we're going to pray one for another. And then we're really going to ask the Lord to pour out his spirit upon us as a people. We're going to ask the Lord to pour out his spirit upon us as a people. But the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not just in some event-oriented Christian way, but for the sake of producing a people of great surrender. Lord, pour your spirit out upon us as a people and give us power that we don't have to surrender to you in ways that are greater than what we realize me being the ultimate resource of my life is able to produce. Give me grace that's going to bring me beyond the threshold of the most intense struggle and place of resistance. The walls that I've erected in my own life where I have chosen to go without the knowledge of God in certain ways if the knowledge of God is attached to obedience. Give me grace because I want to know you, Lord.
my heart actually aches to know you, Lord. And to be freed. To be freed from the influence of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. No matter how spiritual it may sound, no matter how quantifiably we can justify the results, Lord, I want to be all yours. And whatever particular path you're outlining in order for that to be real in me the way that you long for it to be real, not just because I've adopted a particular language, because having a conversation about obedience is not the same as obedience. And at times, Lord, we realize that we've found a particular satisfaction in just conversing about what we know you want. No, we actually want to give you what you want. We don't just want to acknowledge it, see it from a distance, and yet think that because we can communicate about it, that it's the same thing in every paying the price to give it to you. Lord, we want to give you what you're asking for in every space in every place, in every way. I pray that you would invite us into brokenness that would produce resurrection, life, and power, and glory. Resurrection life. Where we live on the other side. Where we're raised up in glory and in power on the other side of laying our life down in the greatest way we ever imagined God would ask us to. Lord, give me grace to lay my life down. Give me grace where me being the ultimate resource of my life, give me grace for all of my dreams and desires and at times ambitions that are attached to the system of the age, give me grace where with authenticity and joy I can say that my greatest delight is in knowing you. I want to know you, Lord. I want to know you, Lord. I want to break into the knowledge of God for my own heart and my own life. I want to break into the knowledge of God that will satisfy me in every season, that will sustain me through all the woes, the tears, the successes, incentives. I want the knowledge of God that will consistently recalibrate me to your leadership. I want the knowledge of God that will produce in me a desire to follow you in the midst of a variety of competing interests and incentives. I want the knowledge of God that will actually put a harness on me because the world is wild and rulers and powers are real and all of the attractions and the seduction of the sway of the world is something that if I'm not actually acknowledging that I can be derailed and justify it with spiritual sounding language, I need the knowledge of God. And here I am, Lord, asking you for it. I need the knowledge of God for my own heart, and I need the knowledge of God for my family. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we're going to walk with God.
As for me and my house, we're going to pay every price. We are going to, with great grace and the unction and the joy and the power of the Spirit, we are going to let God put his harness on us together as a people. And we're going to come under. We're going to yield. We're going to become subject. Why? Because he's actually revealed himself to us. Great revelation should fuel great subjection. And Lord, this is what we want this afternoon. We want you to reveal yourself to us where your presence means everything, where you as a person mean everything. So for a moment before we actually respond in any particular way or, or begin to lay hands on each other in any particular way, I just want to consider for the next few moments as, as Shane plays, in what way is the leadership of the Spirit inviting you into a great place of obedience so that the access to the knowledge of God in a great way can become yours? Because if you disconnect obedience from the knowledge of God, then you can easily justify at times reasons not to obey Him. But when obedience is about the knowledge of God, and knowing him in ways that without that obedience we'll never know him. Then in every way possible, we have to contend for his grace. Where he does in us what we can't do ourselves to give to him what it is that he is asking us to give him. It's insane to consider. He asks for it and then gives you grace to do it even when you don't want to do it and then rewards you when you do it, even though he gave you the power to do it, with a greater revelation of himself, even though, based off of our resistance, we might not have deserved it. He does it all. So let's, for the next moment or so, let's consider what the leadership of the Spirit in this season of our life is looking for and asking for. In what way is the Lord asking you to be more His? In what way is He desiring to have a holy possession where you live as His possession, where we live our lives as a divine possession? I am the Lord's. Well, where is that revealed? Well, it's embodied in these because this is what he's asking me for. These are the ways I'm obeying him. These are the ways that he's bringing me to the end of myself, but I'm actually finding a version of myself on the other side of the end of myself that I used to be self-preserving. I'm finding a me on the other side of the death of me that I used to protect and preserve. In what way is the leadership of the Spirit trying to lead you to the person of Jesus in a greater way in this season? Lord, what are you asking for? What do you want? What are you asking for? What do you want? What are you asking for? What do you want? Lord, reveal your leadership. Evaluate every area of my life. Every area 
of my heart and life. Oh my Lord.